You would turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 28, verses 16. I'm also going to ask you to mark or place your finger in Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. We'll take a quick detour there at one point in the sermon. But uh, it's always kind of difficult or a challenge for me to determine what I'm going to preach on because, you know, usually it's just once or twice here or there throughout the year. So, you know, I've always got things going through my mind. You know, what am I going to, what, what am, what am I going to preach on? What do I think the church needs right now in, in the life of the body? And um, so I had this text pretty much decided by last weekend, and I've, I'd already started doing a little bit of studying. But, you know, it's amazing what God does uh, in orchestrating events, especially when it comes to the preaching of his word. But uh, I sat in the sermon last week that, that Sam gave, and it just became clear to me that that was going to be a perfect prelude or perfect introduction to what I want to talk about today. Last, well, first of all, our, our sermon is titled The Greatest Commission from Matthew 28, 16 through 20. The key words for our worshipers in training are authority, nations, disciples. And I added one last night that I would have added if I had if I had thought about it more. But triumph is our fourth keyword. Triumph. So last week Sam preached a sermon called "Facing a Task Unfinished" from Romans fifteen twenty and twenty one, and he told us about what I consider some great men of God, missionaries like John Patton and Adoniram Judson and William Carey and the two men, John Williams and and James Harris, who died moments after landing at their destination, eaten by cannibals. And 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 I thought to myself, you know, why? Why would these men risk it all? Why would they risk everything to make... At that time, what I I think was an excruciating weeks-long journey to go to far and distant lands where he knew no one, and they looked different from him, and their culture was foreign to him, and where there was a good chance they would die, which we learned that did happen. And not just them, but their wives and their family, their children. Why would they do this? Why would they go through this? Well, we learned last week that they had taken up a task, an unfinished task. But who takes on such a task as this without sufficient reason and motivation? We think about the Apostle Paul, who Sam preached from Romans 15, that he wrote Romans 15. And his motivation, no doubt, was God's glory and the salvation of the lost. He believed the words that he quoted from the prophet Isaiah that those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. And these are our motivations. We, we, we serve God for his glory and, and for the salvation of the lost. But what was Paul's goal? What, what were these missionaries' goal? Are not tasks specific things that you do to accomplish a goal? So that's what we're going to talk about this morning, and I'm going to hopefully try to answer that as we look at Matthew um, 28, verses 16 through 20. So let me read that now. Matthew 28, starting in verse 16. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, 
to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So there are many who have said that these five verses hold the key to understanding the entire Gospel of Matthew. I'm going to quote from R.T. France. I'll be quoting from him two or three times this morning. He says, Theologically, one may read back from this final scene to illuminate the significance of much that has been said and done in earlier chapters. But from a literary and aesthetic point of view, it is far more satisfying to read the story as Matthew has presented it to us, to follow the unfolding revelation of the Son of God, and to share with the crowds and with his disciples the growing awareness that something of much greater significance is taking place than they had first imagined. And so to arrive at last at this final text in which all the strands have come together and the triumph of the Son of Man, who is also the Son of God, can at last be openly and fearlessly proclaimed, end end quote. So basically what he's saying is that a lot has happened in the book of Matthew to get us to this point. Most recently, Matthew has written about an extended period of confrontation between Jesus and the religious leaders. You you know about this. His confrontation with the Pharisees, who were the conservatives of the time, and the Sadducees, who were the liberals of the time. And after that, Matthew tells about the rejection of Jesus by these same Jewish leaders. And then the last straw... For Jesus' followers, his apparent defeat by crucifixion on a cross. But now, as the beginning of chapter 28, all of this is in the past. A massive change has taken place. And this is a key point I want to emphasize. There has been a massive change. We need to fully appreciate this change in order to understand this text. Everything is different now. Jesus, the man from Galilee, he has died on a cross, but he has also triumphed over his foes. And he has been resurrected from the dead and now back in his home territory. He's on his home court, so to speak, here in Galilee, in the mountains of Galilee, right back where his mission started. If you're not aware of it, this is where Jesus started his mission. Jesus has come full circle right now. And we might, we may get from this kind of a feeling of completeness. He's come back to where he started, and there's something triumphant about his words today. Something full of hope. Jesus has accomplished ultimate victory over sin, death, and the devil. And now he has a mission for these 11 men, his disciples, And by extension, it's our mission as well. It's the church's mission. 
So things weren't looking so hot just a few days before this, right? Matthew 26, 56, we see that all of his disciples did what? They left him alone, arrested, in jail, rejected by those close to him, mocked, beaten. They left him to die. Just days before this, Jesus had been cruelly crucified on a cross. But now these same disciples will get instruction and will be given the responsibility to lead his mission. The same ones that had just abandoned him a few days ago. And by doing this, Jesus, the one they abandoned, will restore them back to their positions of trust and responsibility. Here, Jesus gives them their final instructions for fulfilling the mission that he has for them. So now back to the change that has happened. By the fact of his resurrection from the dead, Jesus is now revealed in all his glory as the vindicated, enthroned Son of God, or Son of Man. This enthroned status before now has always been spoken of as a future event, something that's going to happen, something not yet. But now the yet has happened. The future expectation has become a full-blown reality. This story that we see in Matthew of a baby born, this baby has a royal kingly ancestry. He's from the lineage of David. This was a child who has wise men follow stars. Have you ever thought about it? Men are following stars. Stars are God's highlighter that he uses at his whim to direct and guide people and highlight where he wants, what he wants them to do. And these men find him to worship him and bring extravagant gifts. And these aren't Jews, mind you. These are pagan men. Matthew tells about of a wild man in the, in the wilderness preaching that everyone must repent because the kingdom of God is at hand. It's within their midst, within their grasp. Matthew then tells us that Jesus himself is the great light prophesied in the book of Isaiah that scatters darkness and destroys the shadow of death. This Jesus is the reason we fear no evil in Psalm 23. It's his rod and his staff that comforts us. And he in Matthew 4 repeats the words of John the Baptist, John the Baptist in Matthew, Matthew 3 with the same exact message, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So something we need to remember though, this message is not without conflict, right? It's not without enemies. It was put briefly on pause while Jesus confronted his enemies in Jerusalem. And now that he has conquered his enemies, he can resume this message as planned and as promised. But now there's a difference. The mission is no longer just to the lost sheep of Israel, but to all the world, as Jesus had predicted in Matthew 24, 14. The mustard seed has been planted and is ready to grow into, quote, largest of the plants in the garden, Matthew 13, 32. This new community of faith is to be made up of Jesus' disciples who obey Jesus' commands and will be strengthened and motivated by Jesus' never-ending presence among them. 
And this new community will be his ecclesia. This is the Greek word in the New Testament for a gathered and assembled people. They're gathering and assembling around Jesus because it is he who now holds all authority in heaven and on earth. Now, Jesus is to be seen seen not just as a preacher of faith in God, but this man, Jesus, is now the object of faith. He is God. Again, R.T. France says, Note the word all repeated four times in verses 18 through 20. It's actually three in the ESV plus uh, and, uh, and always. Here, all the partial glimpses of Jesus' universal authority are brought together in a final, comprehensive declaration by him. End quote. So, as the title of the sermon suggests, and what most of us are familiar with, is that these verses are normally referred to as the Great Commission, right? If you've grown up in church or anywhere around church, you've heard These verses referred to as the Great Commission. But some have pointed out how closely this scene resembles the commissioning of of prophets and others in the Old Testament, where God sends out sometimes reluctant prophets, prophets that feel like they're inadequate to complete the task that he's given them. But he sends them out anyway to fulfill his purpose with the assurance that he will enable he would enable and help, help them in their task and their mission. So here maybe we, we are reminded of Abraham or Gideon, Moses, Isaiah, and others. Now these stories usually mark the beginning of their service to God, and that is how these verses are to the disciples. For the disciples and for us, this may be the end. We may find this in the end of the book of Matthew, but it's just the beginning of our mission for God. So let's look at each of these verses in a little more detail. Verse 16 said, Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. So the disciples have apparently come back together after they scattered in Jerusalem and are now in Galilee. And they are aware that Jesus has risen from the dead at this point since Mary Magdalene and Mary were instructed to tell them about Jesus' resurrection back in verses 7 and 8 of the same chapter. And also in verse 10, they, they instructed them to go to Galilee and meet Jesus. So there's probably, I mean, put yourself, I want you to put yourself in the disciples' shoes for a little bit. Put yourself in their position. There's probably a certain level of expectation, right? They're probably a little excited about this since they are going to see their resurrected Messiah and their teacher for the last three years. This man who they lived with for three years, who they loved, and he died. And now they're going to see him again. That doesn't happen every day. It's not a common occurrence. And again, they've come full circle, so they're back to where they started, which must have made this an even more exciting time for them, but perhaps also there's a little apprehension, right? They don't know fully what to expect. This is pretty weird for them. So when they, verse 17 says, and to that point, verse 17 says, and when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. So Quite the divided reaction here. 
So when they, when they saw him, some worshipped him, but some doubted. And the Greek word here, you may be familiar with it, is proskuneo, which can mean to bow, but is also interpreted worship. And there's little doubt that this is full-blown worship here that they're giving to Jesus. He is now recognized by them as more than a friend. He's more than a rabbi or a teacher. And he's more than just a man. But what about the fact that some doubted? You know, what's, what's going on there? What's up with that? Well, the disciples have had a few days to get used to the idea that Jesus had risen from the dead. And they knew they were coming to see him here. Why then would any one of them doubt, let alone some of them, implying more than one? And some people have tried to say that there are some other people there, but this can't be someone other than disciples, as Matthew is very specific about who is there, even confirming the number of the disciples. He said there's 11. And some commentators agree that even the construction of the Greek does not really lend to that interpretation that there's other people there. So what, what was this doubt all about? Well, the Greek word here translated doubt is used only one other time in the New Testament, and that is in Matthew 14, 31. And if you remember, that's when Peter gets out on the water after he sees Jesus in the storm, and he starts working on the, walking on the water, and then he does what? He starts sinking. Good, good old Peter. And the, 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 this is what, and this is the word that when Peter starts sinking, Jesus asks him, why? He says, Peter... Why do you doubt? Why do you doubt? And the word here is dealing with a hesitancy to worship. The idea is not intellectual doubt, but a practical uncertainty or a confusion. Peter was confused. He was walking on water. This is weird. What's going on here? And he starts to sink. Well, the disciples see Jesus, and some are still a little confused. So I believe that what's going on here is that the disciples for three years have been primarily exposed to the humanity of Jesus. They've been eating, sleeping, and the things that go along with that. Talking, learning from a man. Even though they knew he was a special man, they now see something familiar to them, but yet very different. Remember how Peter, James, and John reacted to the transfiguration And God's voice, it said they fell on their face and they were terrified. In Luke 24, when Jesus appeared to the disciples after the resurrection, also it says that they were startled and frightened. It took a a little while for them to get used to this, right? It took a little while to get used to Jesus coming back from the dead. So now they're seeing a man who died. It only makes sense that some were terrified, not to mention that God's presence in the Bible constantly invokes this type of reaction. And one more thing, though, to add to this, to think about. Think about the last time that the disciples had seen Jesus. It was in Gethsemane, and they had abandoned him, like we talked about earlier. They all left him in his greatest hour of need, and they hadn't seen him since then. How would he react to them at that point? It's not hard to imagine that the disciples, at least initially, would have conflicting instincts of wanting to worship this risen man, this Messiah, and at the same time, 
They wanted to avoid being embarrassed by the uncertainty of what he would say to them or how he would treat them. So I think all of this makes perfect sense in this context to explain there's a hesitancy among some of the disciples. But in the next verse, what does Jesus do in verse 18? Well, note note this. Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So note, note what it says at the beginning, that Jesus came to the... It doesn't, say, it doesn't start out by just saying, Jesus said. Like so many other times in, in, in the scriptures, it says, Jesus said. But Matthew made it clear that Jesus came to the disciples and spoke to them. Jesus comes to his frightened disciples and reassures them of his nearness to them. He comes to them in their time of need. He speaks to them to restore any broken relationships. But he moves on quickly because the words he's about to speak will leave their failure as a distant memory, completely buried by the much more important reality of the mission that he's about to call them to. Notice what the disciples say here. What do the disciples say? Nothing. The focus falls finally and fully on Jesus and him alone. Their role is the same as ours, to listen, to understand, and to obey. So it's widely believed, and I agree, that the phrase here, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, is meant to be is meant to fulfill the words of the prophet Daniel in Daniel 7, 13 and 14. So if you're there, flip over. Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14 says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So not only in verse 18, this is not the only place we see Daniel 7, uh, Daniel 7. Not only in verse 18, but we'll see again in verse 19 and verse 20, we see echoes of these verses in the mission to all the nations and Jesus' powerful presence until the end of the age. Now, Jesus has spoken several times in Matthew. And if you remember, Matthew was written primarily to, to a Jewish audience. And, this, and Matthew is an apologetic by Matthew to convince a Jewish audience that Jesus is the Jewish Messiah spoken about in the Old Testament. So it makes perfect sense that he would reference the Old Testament. So not only here, but Jesus, Matthew records Jesus speaking several times using the language of Daniel 7, 13 through 14. If you're taking notes, I don't have time to go to all of them, but uh, the other times in Matthew are Matthew 10, 23, Matthew 16, 28, Matthew 19, 28, Matthew 24, 30 through 31, Matthew 25, 31 through 34, and Matthew 26, 64. And three of these passages connect the event associated with this as a near future event to be seen by those alive at the time 
of Jesus' speaking. So the vision of the one like a son of man from Daniel is most likely the source of Jesus' favorite name for himself. This was his favorite name that he would refer to himself as, the son of man. Daniel's vision is of one who is brought, this is important, is one who is brought before God's throne in heaven and giving an everlasting kingship over all peoples, languages, and nations. So pay attention in this verse, the Son of Man comes before God to be enthroned king. He comes to the Ancient of Days. Now the technical verb in Daniel and the New Testament word translated come there is the ordinary verb for come. Something's coming somewhere. Not the technical Greek word, and maybe you've heard of it, it's parousia, that is normally used to refer to Jesus' second coming, or his eschatological coming, his second coming, that has to do with the future, far-off future things. This word parousia, which is the word mainly used to talk about the second coming, is actually only used four times in the New Testament, all in Matthew 24, where the future second coming, or parousia, is clearly distinguished from coming in the clouds of heaven, like Matthew uses in chapter 24, verse 30. So what this means, what does this mean, is that when you read the gospel, in the Gospels of the Son of Man coming, we should understand that he is referring to this, what Jesus is talking about in Matthew 28. And I quote, I think R.T. France again, it could be Ken Gentry, but I got a little confused. I didn't write down where the quote came from. But it says, the quote is, when we see Son of Man coming, it is referring to, quote, a heavenly enthronement, the vindication and empowering of the Son of Man after his earthly rejection and suffering, when God will turn the tables on those who thought they had him in their power. Here in verse 18, the echo of Daniel 7.14 indicates that already, immediately after his resurrection, the Son of Man has received his kingly authority. It seems then that the sovereign authority we see in Daniel 7, first inaugurated when Jesus has risen from the dead, works itself out in successive phases throughout history until it finds its ultimate fulfillment in the last judgment. End of quote. So my point is here is that Jesus was given all authority at his resurrection. Romans 1.14, Philippians 2.8 and 9 indicates that this was the point that Jesus received his authority. The spoils of victory over death, sin, and the devil are his. His newfound authority contains universal dominion since it encompasses heaven and earth. Jesus is now completely vindicated over those who tried to destroy him and kill him and stop his mission. They may have killed him, but they did not stop him. His sovereignty is now established over not only the whole earth, just like the one as the Son of Man in Daniel's vision, but his sovereignty and authority is now established in heaven as well as earth. Let's talk about that a minute. Remember... Of course you remember last time I preached. I know, you know, you go back and listen to it every week. But the last time I preached, we talked about Matthew 4 a little bit, where the devil tempted Jesus. And what's the one of the things that he tempted Jesus with? He said, I will give you the kingdoms of the world, the kingdoms of the earth. 
Now, this authority that Jesus has now received is greater than the one that Satan offered him, and he refused. Jesus, after obeying the will of the Father, now has his rightful inheritance, which is far more than Satan could ever offer him. He has the very authority that chapter 11, verse 25 says, is attributed to the Father as Lord of heaven and earth. So here at the end of Matthew, we find the culmination of this kingship theme that has been running through Matthew since since chapter 1. Chapter 1, we see this royal Davidic genealogy of Joseph, Jesus' adopted father. We see the Magi search, which we've talked about. They came searching for who? The king of the Jews. We see Herod feeling Jesus as a threat to his kingship. And then the growing theme of Jesus as the Messiah dramatically enacted in his royal ride into Jerusalem. Now the true nature of Jesus' kingship has been revealed. The kingship that we see here is much bigger than Jerusalem or Israel. It's bigger than any state or country. This is the kingship that Matthew has been alluding to in the whole book. It's a universal kingship over all things, all people, all families, all churches, all cities, all states, all countries, over the entirety of heaven and earth. He has authority over our thoughts, our actions, our jobs, our relationships, our education, our hobbies, over every aspect of everyone's lives. This is our basis for a truly Christian worldview. There is nowhere in existence where Jesus does not have authority and where he does not exercise his kingship. And this has far-reaching implications for us that I'd like us to continue to think about. But, for time's sake, we're going to move on to verse 19. Now, in verse 19, after declaring his authority, after declaring his kingship, He says, go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So Jesus' first word in this verse is, go. Jesus is reversing his direction in chapter 10 of Matthew, verse 5, where he told his disciples, go not. He said, go nowhere among the Gentiles. He didn't want them going among the Gentiles. Their immediate job was the Jewish people. And this was his plan from all along. As we see in Romans 1.16, the gospel goes first to the Jew and then also to the Greeks or the Gentiles. And William Hendrickson in his, com- in his commentary says this. And I, I, love this I love this quote. Go also implies that the disciples... And all this holds for God's children in general, that's us, must not concentrate all their thoughts on coming to church. They must also go to bring the precious tidings to others. Of course, they cannot go unless they have first come, and unless they keep coming as well as going, they cannot give unless they're willing to receive. End quote. So Jesus says go, and then he says immediately, therefore, or because all authority 
has been given to Christ Jesus. One, he says it's, God, it's God's plan, right? This is my plan. Two, he has promised to give us the necessary strength. And I always do this. Three, because he is worthy of all men's work, faith, worship, and obedience. God is worthy. So go, therefore. Now that Jesus, the Son of Man, is enthroned as king with all authority, he begins to exercise his authority and reveal his kingship to who and where? All the nations. Now we are to go and do what? What does he tell us to do here in this verse? Go, therefore, and make disciples. Notice, interestingly, he does not say make disciples converts. Now, what's the difference? Well, being a convert is required of being a disciple, but a disciple technically is a pupil or a learner. If you're a disciple of Jesus, you will want, and this is important, if you sitting here in the chair today at Redeemer Baptist Church, if you are a disciple of Jesus, you will want to learn about him and from him. Your mind, as well as your heart, will be engaged in this discipleship. If you remain and abide in the truth, which Jesus says, I am the truth, then you are truly Christ's disciple. And he tells us this in John eight thirty one. He says, so Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So friends, that's... One of the big questions I have for you today and that I have to ask myself, are you a disciple? Are you abiding in Jesus? Now, this is not the first time Matthew has used this phrase, all the nations, not even close. Matthew 24, 9 says, Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. And then later in chapter 25, verses 31 and 32, it says, When the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. Now, in these verses, Jesus is pointing out, I think, three things. He's pointing out the area of the disciples' future activity. The area is all the nations. The scope of the proclamation of the good news of the kingdom, which is the world. And the extent of the kingdom of the Son of Man, who is Jesus, which is also the whole world. All the nations. So the commission is to now go far beyond Israel, but that does not mean Israel is excluded. Jesus nowhere here revokes the mission to Israel, but as I talked about earlier, he adds a new mission, removing his previous prohibition in chapter 10, verse 5, to go nowhere among the Gentiles. So now we get to a very important point. What are the disciples, and by extension us, to do when we go, therefore, to all the nations? Well, first, I want you to notice that Jesus here is giving us the expected end result of the mission or the 
but the goal of the mission. He's not giving us the means. He's giving us the end result. Though now we know the means, the means are included to proclaim the good news, the gospel of the kingdom, to all the nations. That's the means. That's what we are to do. But that's not what Jesus specifically expresses here. For the Son of Man, who is now actively beginning his kingdom expansion, the message is that we should continue to go to the nations with the gospel until they not only hear the message, but will respond with true faith and commitment, the same level that he expected of those who became disciples during his earthly ministry that we just read in John chapter 8. So there is some disagreement on whether this phrase is speaking of the nations as entire corporate groups like we would think of a nation or as individual or groups among the nations. And I want to point that out since there is disagreement. I want to be charitable here. My understanding is because of the unambiguous clarity of of the words that this refers to nations as a whole. And while not everyone in every nation will become a disciple, I believe we have good reason to take Jesus at his word here, and that he will, through his church's proclamation of the gospel, eventually carry out what he commands here. And that command is for his disciples, both then and now, to labor to bring the nations under the yoke of Jesus' authority, to lead the nations into baptism in the name of the triune God, and to formally instruct them on everything that Jesus taught. The process given here for making disciples, disciples is baptizing, and we'll see in the next verse, teaching. So these two activities should be integral parts of the commission or missionary endeavor or missionary activities of the church, baptizing and teaching. So the next few words tells us how we are to baptize disciples and ultimately what their baptism represents, namely a person's initiation into a saving relationship with the triune creator God of the universe through faith in Jesus. Again, I quote France. It is one thing for Jesus to speak about his relationship with God as son, with father, and to draw attention to the close links between himself and the Holy Spirit. So listen, but for the son to take his place as the middle member between the Father and the Holy Spirit in a threefold depiction of the object of the disciples' allegiance is extraordinary. The human leader of the disciples' group has become the rightful object of their worship. And this is important. And the fact that the three divine persons are spoken of as having a single name is a significant pointer toward the Trinitarian doctrine of three persons and one God. One name, one God, and three persons. So one last note on this. If if you've ever heard anyone say that this is just for the disciples while they were the original intended audience, but as part of the church that they started and founded, we are to continue this mission. If you don't think so, then to be consistent, you need to think that we should stop baptizing and teaching as well. So, last verse, and getting close to concluding. Last verse, verse 20. He says, Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. 
So here in verse 20, there's kind of a switch going on. For, for all of Matthew, who's been the teacher? Jesus. Jesus has been the teacher. But now he tells the disciples that they, not him, are now to be the ones doing the teaching. So this again marks the change that has taken place, or marks another change that, take, that has taken place due to Jesus' death and resurrection. But remember, the te- even though they're doing the teaching, it's not of their own authority, but that of Jesus, the risen Lord, as we saw in verse 18. And what are they to teach? All of Jesus, or God's, commandments. All of them. Not just the Old Testament, not just the New Testament, but all of them. The entire counsel or instruction of God, not just the easy ones, but also the hard ones. All of them. You may be thinking to yourself, this is a massive task. task. This is a big job. But the good thing is, we have the one who has all authority behind this. He's orchestrating this. He's giving the desire and the power. And he will accomplish what he has planned, as we saw in our Sunday school class this morning. But we are also strengthened to accomplish this great commission because Jesus had, has promised to be with us until the end of the age. Now, friends, this is a promise. It's a fact. There is no doubt about it. This is not a short-term effort, right? This isn't a 12-month or 5-year thing. This is a massive task. It's a big job. But this is for the long haul. And and note that Jesus says, behold. Or another way of saying this is, pay attention. Take note. Remember, hey, listen to this. You're going to need to remember this. I, the risen Christ, the Messiah, the one with all authority over all the nations, it is I. I am the one who is with you until the end of the age. So when we're reconciled to God through faith in His Son, we not only receive a legal transaction, which we do, but we receive a real relationship with God. God is with us. He is our Emmanuel. So in conclusion, this is an enormous task. And think about the disciples. If it seems like a big, big task to us, think about them. There was 11 of them. 11 Jesus says, go into the world and make disciples of all the nations. And they're looking around like, okay, <laughs> there's only 11 of us. They were fearful. We saw earlier, they were still doubting. They were fumbling around. They didn't know what to do. But Jesus promises to be with them and all of his people, including us. Another way of translating the end of the ages, throughout all the days. Until the end. And he's going to be with us to ensure that the mission is successfully completed. Uh, Ken Gentry says, Thus, the enormous task may take much time. He encourages them to understand that he is with them, to see that they accomplish it in good order. They are not left to themselves. The Lord of glory not only commissions them, but accompanies them in their task. And he accompanies us in this very same task. So I hope this somewhat answers the question of why men would go and risk their life, risk 
their families' lives. This is why Pastor Nick is in Nigeria right now. This is why we pray for missions every month. This is why we go to the park as often as we can to bring this gospel of the kingdom to all the nations. And you know what? God's bringing nations to us. Y'all, he brings them to us. We don't even really have to go that far. He brings them to us. We've got massive ways and new ways to communicate. He's, he's helping us right now. I can, we can see it with our eyes how he's helping us to accomplish this task. we just got to go and do it. Friends, if, you're, if you are truly a disciple, a follower of Jesus, then this is your commission. It's my commission. It's our commission as well. And it's the greatest commission. Jesus will accompany us every step of the way. And if you're asking yourself how, it starts by serving him right where you are. God has you here for a reason. By learning and abiding in his word, and by sending or being sent for the spread of the gospel, to the glory of God the Father, the praise of God the Son, and empowered by God the Holy Spirit. If you're a disciple, you need to be on this commission. Now, if you're not a Christian, if you don't know Jesus and you're not on mission, then I commend Christ to you right now. He's your only hope of salvation. Salvation from what? From eternal punishment in hell. The Bible tells us there's no other name under heaven by which anyone can be saved but the name of Jesus. Repent of your sins. Turn to Christ. Receive forgiveness in eternal life, and God will be with you. He will be your Emmanuel. And if you do that, then this commission, the greatest commission, will be yours as well. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Lord, thank you for Jesus. Thank you that he has all authority in heaven and on earth, and that he sits ruling and reigning at the right hand of the Father so that we can be encouraged and confident that when we go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, that you will be with us, whether it's in our neighborhood, whether it's at the store, whether it's in a park, or whether it's all the way across on the other side of the world. You will be with us. You know no boundaries. You have no limits. There is nothing beyond your control, no one beyond hope. So, Lord, I thank you today. I pray, Father, that this was an encouragement. I pray that I would decrease and that you would increase, that you would increase in everyone's heart and everyone's mind and everyone's thought and everyone's devotion. Lord, I thank you that you come to us even when we have been disobedient, even when we fail and flounder and make mistakes. You come, you forgive us when we ask, you bless us, you encourage us, you grow us, you help us. Lord, so I pray today, God, that we would be encouraged, that we would take this commission seriously, that we would realize each and every one of us have a part to play in this great
Commission. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for your people. And thank you for your kingdom. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.